0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Honor to Whom Honor is Due, celebrating Black History Month for Sunday, January 29, 2012. When I finished grad school in 1985, I had exactly one job offer. So that summer, my family moved to Michigan, and I began a six-year stint teaching at William Tyndale College. One of the best parts about Tyndale was that 35% of our students were African Americans. While many at the conservative college argued whether women could be ordained, or even enroll in a preaching class, our black students mainly ignored the controversy and went about their business with quiet confidence. Latricia pastored a storefront church that her grandmother had founded. Corletta led a megachurch and traveled the world preaching. Lee Artemis pastored a historic steeple church in inner city Detroit and even invited me to preach one Sunday. Loa still keeps in touch today, 25 years later. <clears throat> I'll always remember my black students with gratitude as sisters and brothers who encourage me with their robust faith. And I'm also grateful for Black History Month because, among other things, it reminds me how those students helped shape my life even beyond those six years I was with them. One of the most counterintuitive facts of history is that blacks adopted the religion of their white oppressors, a religion that was often the primary means of their oppression. Beginning in 1444, and lasting over 400 years, the European slave trade marketed and merchandised 40 million African people. Black history in America began in August of 1619, when 20 slaves disembarked from a ship in Jamestown, Virginia, and the captain traded them for food. By 1860, the United States Census identified four million slaves in the United States. The Civil War didn't end because of Christian goodwill, observed historian Mark Knoll, but because of the armies that slaughtered 620,000 Americans. Mass death on an unprecedented and unimaginable scale That was equal to the total American fatalities in the Revolution, the War of 1812, the Mexican War, the Spanish War, World War I, World War II, and the Korean War combined. And these combatant deaths don't include civilian deaths. And since over half of the Civil War dead were never identified, many people lost not only their lives, but even their names. A significant number of the four million slaves freed after the Civil War lived into the 1940s. During the Depression, the Federal Writers Project hired people to interview and record first-person narratives from these former slaves, the last first-hand resource that could document their slave experiences. Today the Library of Congress houses 2,000 such interviews. In their original dialect and broken English. It's called the simply titled Slave Narratives, portions of which are also available on the one hour film called Unchained Memories, Readings from the Slave Narratives, 2003. Unchained Memory uses original still photographs, contemporary reenactments, slave music, a running commentary by Whoopi Goldberg and most notably, and thus the film's title, dramatic readings of those original slave narratives by contemporary African-American actors and actresses like Oprah Winfrey. They recall the daily horrors of slave life from those who lived to tell of it. Relentless work, miserable housing and diet, the denial of education, sexual violence, and how the masters used Christianity to keep their slaves passive. Neither the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation, nor the Thirteenth Amendment fully abolished what Abraham Lincoln called the monstrous injustice of slavery. After all, it was the planters who were reimbursed for their losses, not the slaves. And as Isabel Wilkerson shows in her award-winning book, The Warmth of Other Suns, The years of Reconstruction gave way to a Jim Crow South that was characterized by what she calls a feudal caste system of lynchings, terror, torture, and violence. They say a picture's worth a thousand words, but no words can describe, let alone explain, the horrific crimes against humanity. Documented in the book, Without Sanctuary, lynching photography in America, from the year 2000. And not just the hangings, burnings, castration, mutilation, and sadistic tortures, like cutting unborn babies from their mother's womb. This is a significant part of American history, even if high school history courses ignore it. In the late 19th and early 20th century, says Leon Lickwack, two or three black Southerners were hanged, burned at the stake, or quietly murdered every week. In the 1890s, lynchings claimed an average of 139 lives each year, 75% of them black. The numbers declined in the following decades, but the percentage of black victims rose to 90%. Between 1882 and 1968, an estimated 4,742 blacks met their deaths at the hands of lynch mobs. And these are only the documented cases. They don't include the so-called legal lynchings of perverted justice or private posses on nigger hunts. Some lynchings were done in remote areas by psychopaths, but many others were public spectacles that were advertised, described by lurid media headlines, and attended by thousands of voyeuristic spectators. They were carried out and celebrated by leading citizens, state and federal congressmen, and leaders in business and church. Our American Christians, wrote the anti-lynching activist Wells, are too busy saving the souls of white Christians from burning in hellfire to save the lives of black ones from present burning in fires kindled by white Christians. There was no due process of law in most of these lynchings, nor any attempt to hide the identity of the executioners. In fact, the U.S. Postal Service even mailed commemorative postcards with pictures of lynchings. Trains provided free services to the spectacles. When six million Blacks fled the South in the Great Migration of 1915 to 1970, they often experienced a new and virulent strain of what Isabel Wilkerson calls hyper-racism in the North and West. That led to all sorts of difficulties and disillusionments in housing, education, health care, and employment. Not only whites, and especially European immigrants, but even old-time Blacks resented the new arrivals. Maybe blacks accepted the gospel because they knew their Bibles well, especially prophetic texts like Isaiah 58. Whatever the reason or reasons, Lerone Bennett points out in his book Before the Mayflower that toward the end of the 19th century, the black church quickly established itself as the dominant institutional force in black American life. Martin Luther King, to take just one example, was a churchman. And there was never a time when he was not a pastor at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery and at Ebenezer Baptist in Atlanta. About himself, King once said, I am the son of a Baptist preacher, the grandson of a Baptist preacher, and the great-grandson of a Baptist preacher. The church is my life, and I have given my life to the church. Yes, genuine change has come, even if too slowly. Vermont became the first state to abolish slavery in 1777. In her book, The Breakthrough, Politics and Race in the Age of Obama, 2009, Gwen Eiffel chronicles how radical changes have redefined the role of blacks in American politics. Today, for example, there are over 40 black city mayors. There's no longer anything like a monolithic black politics in America. Eiffel devotes one chapter to each of four case studies of the new generation of black politicians. Obama, Arthur Davis, a congressman from Birmingham, Alabama, Cory Booker, mayor of Newark, New Jersey, and Deval Patrick, governor of Massachusetts. Eiffel then explores four themes. The complex relationship of generation change in which younger black politicians must relate to their older forebears who carried the torch during the days of the civil rights movement, when many of them weren't even born. Secondly, race and gender. Which group is more disadvantaged and which identity helps or hurts more in politics? Third, she considers what she calls legacy politics, in which a younger generation enjoys the advantages and negotiates the disadvantages of a famous parent politician, like Jesse Jackson, Jr. And finally, the politics of identity, in which the new generation walks the tightrope of being too black for whites and or too white for blacks. More recently, the Pulitzer Prize winner Eugene Robinson explores contemporary black America in his book Disintegration, the Splintering of Black America, 2010. There's no longer a single narrative that's adequate to describe America's 40 million blacks, says Robinson. Instead, black America has experienced what he calls a radical disintegration that is both hopeful and dispiriting. Indeed, a 2007 Pew poll found that a stunning 37% of blacks agreed with the statement that blacks today can no longer be thought of as a single race because the black community is so diverse. Robinson proposes that black America is fragmented into four distinct groups that are increasingly distinct, separated by demography, geography, and psychology. They have different profiles, different mindsets, different hopes, fears, and dreams. First, there's an enormous black middle class that has entered America's mainstream. This is a historic story, says Robinson, that qualifies as nothing less than a miracle. In 1967, only 25% of black households had a median income of more than 35000 By 2005, that figure had nearly doubled to 45 percent. The percentage of black households earning more than $75,000 increased from 3 percent to 16 percent. In education, during the same time period, high school graduation rates for blacks increased from 30 percent to 83 percent. For all intents and purposes achieving what he calls full parity, with white graduation rates of 87 percent. Secondly, there's a black elite that Robinson calls transcendence, like Oprah, Obama, Condi Rice, and Colin Powell. There have always been isolated individual black elites, of course, but now there are enough of them to comprise a critical mass that wields influence in every sector of society. Third, there are emergents made up of two distinct groups, immigrants from Africa and the Caribbean, and then blacks in biracial marriages. A Pew study found that in 2008, 22 percent of black males and 9 percent of black females married outside their race. Of special interest are the children of emergents, for whom Jim Crow racism is not a bitter shared experience but only a story learned from history books. And then finally, Robinson considers the abandoned, symbolized in the events of Katrina in the movie Precious. The abandoned are profoundly isolated, and because of this they've created their own cultural ecosystems. They need nothing less, says Robinson, than an aggressive domestic martial Plan. A few years ago, I observed Black History Month by reading some primary materials on the subject. Of the many good options, I chose three slave narratives. Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, 1845. The Narrative of Sojourner Truth, 1850. And Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, 1861, by Harriet Jacobs. This year, I'm reading the critically acclaimed biography, Malcolm X, 2011, by Manning Marable. I'm also offering a prayer of thanks for the Christian witness of my black students, who 25 years ago also taught their professor a thing or two. For books this week, I review the Apocryphal Gospels, Texts, and Translations. It's edited by Bart Ehrman and Zlatko, Please. New York, Oxford University Press, 2011. 611 pages. This volume collects nearly all of the Apocryphal Gospels, originally written in Greek, Latin, and Coptic. In the best editions now available, and provided them with fresh and readable English translations. For the editors Erman and Please, nearly all means about forty texts organized into three sections infancy gospels, ministry gospels, and then Passion, Resurrection, and Post Resurrection Gospels. Although it bears mentioning that scholars disagree about the very definition of what constitutes apocryphal literature. On the left-hand page is the text in its original language, while the right-side page contains the English translation. Each text is introduced with an overview of its historical, textual, and literary matters. As a matter of history, these texts are fascinating and invaluable for they illustrate the breadth of the non-canonical literature about Jesus. As for why they were excluded from the Protestant canon, the authors note how that's a question driven by one's theological beliefs. And of course, this includes their own theological beliefs. And whilst Ehrman is a superb textual critic, he's also a polemical, fundamentalist-turned-liberal-turned-agnostic, who's published a number of books with sensational titles that must make his colleagues at the University of North Carolina blush. So, let's be honest, Ehrman has a dog in this historical theological hunt. Some of these texts are 10 to 15 pages long, others are mere fragments. They date from the 2nd or 3rd century all the way to the 11th century and they're often anonymous. Virtually every text has problems, many of them intractable. Some texts are hyper-orthodox, others docetic or gnostic. The infancy gospels can be crudely sensational. Sometimes there are enormous textual alterations that are impossible to to reconstruct. Some of the apocryphal literature does not exist in any manuscript form at all, but is reconstructed from patristic quotations. And almost every imaginable answer has been proposed to these sorts of questions. And proposed solutions to such controversies often fail, say the editors, quote, in no small measure because they attempt, with almost no evidence, to explain the unknown by other unknowns, end quote. Scholarly consensus about historical conclusions is thus often lost in the mists of Christian antiquity. The Apocryphal Gospels Texts and Translations, edited by Bart Ehrman and Zotko Please For film this week, I review The Artist a French movie from the year 2011. This is a silent, black-and-white film about two movie stars who worked during the transition years from silent cinema to the so-called talkies. The film begins in 1927 when George Valentin is the gold standard of silent stars. He lives and looks the part, slick back hair thin mustache, good looks, and a Beverly Hills mansion with Clifton the butler, Skippy his dog, and a massive painting of himself, befitting a good-natured narcissist. A flirtatious friendship with the young upstart Peppy Miller spells trouble. When George dismisses movies with sound, in his career, Kate craters while she rockets to his former fame when she realizes how, quote, People want to hear me talk." Quote. The artist is a visually rich extravaganza, a nostalgic trip down movie's memory lane, an example of how constraints breed creativity, and a reminder of how technological means have forever transformed cinematic ends. Who ever knew that a movie without violence, sex, special effects, or even words could be so powerful? A whole lot of people, it turns out. From France, 2011, the movie is called The Artist. And finally, for Black History Month, we've posted a poem by Langston Hughes, an African-American poet, novelist, playwright, and newspaper columnist. It's simply called Dreams. Langston Hughes lived from 1902 to 1967. Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is broken winged bird that cannot fly. Hold fast to dreams, for when dreams go, life is a barren field frozen with snow. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 29th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.